Welcome to Arcanex Sessions, episode 67. I'm Amelia, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken, and this week we're discussing this year's Serpentine Pavilion, designed by Bjarke Ingels Group. Along with Big's Pavilion, this is the very first year that the Serpentine Galleries will also be hosting four so-called summer houses, in this iteration designed by Kunle Arayeme of NLE, Barco Leibinger, Yona Friedman, and Asif Khan. So for those who are not completely familiar with the Serpentine Galleries Pavilion, this is an annual affair where a giant temporary pavilion is installed on the grounds of the museum for public use, and it's kind of one of the most celebrated summer architectural events in the area. It began around two th- in 2000. The first pavilion was designed by Zaha Hadid, and you can see a few prior pavilions uh, on Archonnect that we'll link to, but there's been a whole host of them and some pretty wacky and exciting ones. This year is so much special because Julia Payton-Jones, the co-director of the galleries, along with Hans-Ulrich Oberst, is stepping down from the Serpentine. And so it's been kind of popularly imagined that this year is she's going out with a bang, which is why that in addition to the just the pavilion, there are now also these summer houses also peppering the grounds. Those summer houses are a little bit smaller than the pavilion, and so they're given less of the spotlight, but they nonetheless are open for public use and they kind of provide a similar function on the grounds. We can sit by them, hang out, provide some shade, basic pavilion use. And the four summer houses this year for the inaugural year are all designed somewhat in response to the nearby Queen Caroline's Temple, which we'll also have photos of, but it is basically a classical style summer house built in 1734, which I loved. I was reading up a little bit from the temple and learned that there's graffiti in the temple dating back to 1821 when the park first opened to visitors. So presumably all of the the summer houses are designed in reference to that temple. And so we've had our post up on Archonnect of Robert Urquhart, who was in London and attended the opening for press of the pavilion and has a write-up explaining the not only the pavilion itself by Big, but going to different summer houses and kind of breaking them down. So Donna and Ken, why don't we start from our perspective across the Atlantic and give some first impressions, what we thought of the both Big's pavilion and the summer houses. I have to say, and I, I, I kind of sound like a broken record on this, but I love Big's Pavilion. I love Big's Pavilion. I love the idea of it. It's these fiberglass tubes that become structural through what I think is a very simple and wonderful little angle bracket bolting mechanism. I like how it's shaped. I like how it's kind of a a smaller scale iteration of much of Bjarke's bigger works with Legos and stepping back curving things, forms that are all similar. I I just love it. I think it's I think it's I think it's radically adorable to use the the phrase that a New York Times writer applied to him many years ago. It's wonderful. I think it's a great pavilion. Ken, what do you think? You know, it's weird. I think when I first saw the image, I'm like, okay, it, this looks very familiar to me. But the, what sold me on the, the overall scheme and, and, the, and the project itself was uh, Bond's photograph of the interior. It was the most stunning image that I could imagine coming from that project. And it really gave me a sense of the space that I don't think I could get from the outside. And seeing the light and the way it hit uh, different surfaces, depending on how long those tubes were, it really gave a, a really um, just amazing quality of the space. I, I thought I really think this was the best pavilion that I've seen come out of there since, you know, since the beginning. I think this is really pretty successful. It, those Iwan Bon photographs all throughout the Archonnect article are just gorgeous. So many of them are beautiful. And yeah, I think this one, it's really achieves this sort of scale of interior space and scale of being a mark on the landscape, but also feels very intimate and approachable because I think of these little repeated elements in the structure. So it's really nice. I have to say, I also, for when I first saw this and when we first reported on who was going to be designing it back in, I believe that was in 
in May of this year is like, or in, in March, excuse me, there was this rendering of these kind of stacked boxes that were constantly referred to either Minecraft or Pixels. It was like the perfect corollary that, that I was immediately kind of turned off and just saw this as very, if you can say like big redundant, it just seemed so too much on the nose for his radical adorableness, or if that was the phrase you, you used, Donna. <laughs> but then, like like Ken said, and, and Donna, you spoke to this as well, the actual interior space. And of course, I haven't been there. So you can take everything that I say with a grain of salt, but I've been reviewing a bunch of photos and seeing even some very casual just iPhone shots from other art connectors who have been able to tour the pavilion. Getting an impression of what the light is like inside really surprised me in a positive way. I was really amazed by how the atmosphere is filtered and created with having all of those openings and also the semi-transparent fiberglass boxes of having the light come in. And I am warming up to it. I'm still a little bit thinking, I'm still a little bit frustrated by the fact that it does seem so redundant. And Oliver Wainwright, the uh, architecture critic for The Guardian, pointed out on Twitter that the proposal is very similar looking to a work that Big did for Ansan in South Korea from 2008 essentially these kind of stacked boxes. And of course, we've seen that before with other projects by Big, that the logic of it does look very familiar, which isn't to necessarily talk it down, right? It's kind of good that there's some type of consistency and not just kind of a radical, weird, out-of-the-box thing that, that comes out of nowhere. But it did seem a little bit like, yeah, we know you didn't have that much time to design this, but did you just pull this out from like a dusty pile of things from six years ago or, or however? And, <laughs> and maybe that's also not a problem, but it just, it struck me as as interesting that there's such consistency. Okay, so some commenters on the thread on the on the Arconnect about this ha made that same comment that, oh, it's another stacked box curving wall that, be, you know, Bjarke always does. And I would say that there are certain artists who rework over and over again the same themes in their work. And we celebrate that because it's very small, incremental, studied, considered improvements or changes to an overall theme. I don't know that those last few words I used would be what you would use to describe Big's work necessarily. I mean, <laughs> he does just seem to throw these things out. But I also want to go ahead and I'm going to point to, and I may not tell the whole story here, but there's a beautiful story about a Zen Buddhist calligraphy master who does calligraphy all day, every day. And he gets to the point 30 years later when he can just do the most beautiful calligraphy with the wave of his hand. And it's not that he's doing the calligraphy in five seconds. It's that he's doing it in 30 years of practice plus five seconds, right? And I can link to the, it's a very famous story. I can link to it in the show notes. But, you know, the notion here is that Bjarke is so good at what he's doing by now that he can just sort of riff on any theme that he's been working with and make it appropriate to a certain scale and place. And I know a lot of commenters on Arconnect would come after me and say, yeah, he's not doing anything that's contextual or anything that's responsive to its time and place. He's just doing the same work over and over again. But I would say, if anything, in a pavilion, a summer temporary installation, that's the place you want to just sort of riff on your own, you know, biggest hits and do something that is uh, that's fun and approachable and enjoyable. You know, it was um, I thought it was interesting when uh, Amelia was talking about uh, the graffiti in that one particular building on the site. And what's always struck me about projects of this nature is the preciousness with which they're held. And the what won't happen is that graffiti that, that Amelia pointed out. You know, I can't help but look at these things and go, well, they exist in a space and can somebody come by and deface these or put graffiti on them and make them something different? And it doesn't ever seem to, these kinds of projects never seem to allow for that because they are, you know, these 
pieces that are held so closely uh, by the people who construct them, by the people who commission them. And it just doesn't allow for like the one thing I want to do on this particular project is I want to climb up the of side course. of this thing. Yes. Yeah. On the outside. <laughs> I, I want to put objects <laughs> in the boxes. I want to fill it with stuff. I want it to, you know, to take on a different life than they intended because, well, that's just how shit happens. And, and it, it, you know, no one built that one building that Amelia talked about with the intention of having graffiti on it. Yet we all go see the Temple of Dendur at the at the Metropolitan Museum. We can just marvel at all of the graffiti and the time being marked. And there doesn't seem to allow for that kind of thing to happen here. It always bothered me that that we're so protective of things like that. Well, this one's already been collected. Exactly, Donna. We're exactly on the same page. Is that it's already because what happens to these pavilions when they're when the, the serpentine event is over and they're kind of left to whatever their sponsor allows them to do with them. So in the case of these, it's they're not only there until the 9th of October. So we have a few months. And then after that point, at least in terms of Bjarke's pavilion, that one has already been bought by a developer. It's going to tour in U- U.S. and Asia a little bit, bought by um, West Bank. And it'll be interesting to see how this thing travels and how interpretations of it change based on its environment. Because, of course, we're kind of getting this beautiful summer sunlight and getting to experience it, at least <laughs> virtually, from that perspective. And seeing it through the through that perspective will, of course, change when it's touring to these different areas. But Ken, I, I completely agree with your point is that, that it's, we want these things to get roughed up, to get used, to get installed in a place where they're going to be forever and then watch how time changes over them. But the very nature of these pavilions, as we've learned from other pavilions in the past and what their shelf life has been, is in no way guaranteed. And so we'll have to see whether this one might even return to Bjarke's possession at some point to be deconstructed and turned into yet another pavilion, perhaps at a later date. We'll just have to see. If it comes to the States, Ken, we're going to go climb it, okay? We'll do it. Absolutely. Deal. Okay. It'll be turned into a locker system for people who need to store things at a water park, and you can just kind of uh, add on different locks. Yeah. Your shoes. When you, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When you go in the, when the ball pit, when you go in the ball pit and you have to take off your shoes, that's where you Actually, I thought thought it would be, uh, uh, it's interesting, but I thought it would be, I make a a very lovely columbarium. And, um... When I saw it, it struck me. I'm like, oh, that's what I would use. That's what I could see using that for. Because it has a perfect kind of uh, interior space. Oh, interesting, Ken. Maybe that's how Bjarke will ask to be memorialized. <laughs> that's And then just to turn it really dark really fast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's go on a little bit more to the other ho- summer houses here. Because they are both in presence and in status, a little bit farther removed than the actual pavilion. They're, they have a smaller footprint to deal with, and they all are not the subject of such intense attention as the pavilion, as they weren't chosen in the same way. But this is the first year that these summer houses exist. And it's based on Robert Urquhart's coverage. He describes walking around and seeing the kind of ex- uh, relationships between, effectively, they're all pavilions, right? Calling them summer houses a little, is a little bit of a, of a misnomer, but they are all basically follies of sorts and things to engage in as a, as a pedestrian and just to hang out in during the summer months. And there's some really interesting, I feel, commonalities that came up in between these different summer houses, not at all in terms of materiality, but there are things here that very much seem to also riff on the same things that Bjarke is dealing with in terms of modularity and prefabricated elements and the ability to kind of remix known architectural elements in a not explicitly humoristic way, but nonetheless a little bit kind of for the fun of it, at least it seems. None of them are outright silly, but um, Donna or Ken, were any of these, did any of them stand out in particular to you as favorites or most disliked? I really didn't find any. I, I found, I, di- I just couldn't connect with the uh, Yona Friedman one. 
I, I just didn't, and partly because I just can't see it in the, I, you almost have to be there to feel it because it's so mm-hmm. thin and wispy and very, it doesn't really have a presence. So it's really hard to kind of see it and try to understand it. So I really wasn't too connected to that one. I find it interesting that this form comes up now, especially in the context of, I guess I could be safe saying mostly other young designers here, that Yona's work is an explicit reworking of earlier uh, studies that he did almost more than a half century ago. And the designs are built on this idea of his plans for the so-called spatial city. And it's really interesting to see how those kinds of ideas get built up at this point in a completely non-urban scenario, you know, it's in a park on the grounds of Kensington Gardens, having this very public access point, but not necessarily one that is, you know, plopped down in the middle of a, of a busy street. But nonetheless, that he's working in this design that he had and that is now reworking for the summer house, it's building on ideas that he developed in the 1950s around what kinds of urban spaces he would want to build. And I'm not sure that that idea really comes across at all, just looking at the design. But I do think that it's worth, especially if you're going to be able to actually go visit, kind of digging a little bit deeper into those ideas to kind of better understand what might have motivated those designs. Because there is something that viewing it, you know, on a monitor gives, does not really help at all. It's just, I totally agree, Ken, it comes off as kind of flimsy and a little bit almost like badly constructed as if it's almost going to fall over, which is too bad because it is kind of a nice, light, more delicate structure in comparison to the other ones that adds a little bit of nice contrast. It's very much coming from that sort of tradition of archigram in the plug-in city or those notions of, like you say, Amelia, urbanism and how do we we build in the city in ways that at the time were very radical to think about building something this modular. So it's a lovely little object. It just doesn't feel much like a summer house, I think is the main, the main problem with it. Yeah, it feels so insubstantial. I, I love Kunle Edeyeme. I have no idea how to pronounce his name. I love his project. And to me, it's sort of the best of postmodernism, which I think a lot of people would dislike it for that reason. But I love that it's really a kind of direct riff on the spaces and voids of the Caroline's Temple. And it uses skin and mass in ways that are similar to that that original building. Um, I just, I think it's lovely. It also gives you a place to sit. It provides shade or protection from the rain, which I think is are both things that in the British summer you want a summer house to do. So I just, I absolutely love it. I think it's a really, really nice project. I totally agree, Donna. And I like that in his actual account and opening at the at the press opening, he refers to some form of humor in architecture, which I think is the closest you would get to having him say it has any type of postmodern <laughs> relationship. But that in this case of it actually does manage to do all of the things that you need it to do. I think that, right. that pretty much there's a play of transparency and, and modularity in every other project that would provide no real shelter. <laughs> and that this one manages to right. do it in a in a really, I think, a pretty fascinating way. And especially, man, those Iwan Ban photos do an amazing job of really attesting to the contrast between the material and the massing of it. And so you get these really beautiful perspectives of at first making one part of the pavilion look chunky and really heavy and really like the all-encompassing space of it. And then another shot that makes, that turns all of that into just a two-dimensional space and then brings you back to an area that shows a different materiality of the structure. I think that was really just incredibly well done, almost like probably to the point of making the structure disappointing (laughs) if you actually go because the photos are just so amazing. But Ken, what did you think of this one? I really can't add anything to it because you've both hit on 
everything. I, I really did enjoy this one. And it's weird. I, I really have never been a fan of postmodernism, um, at least this type of postmodernism. So it's the most static object out of all the pavilions. It's the most fixed. But for some, what I what I appreciated about it was that it was it was less about itself and more about, at least from the camera. So I'm, I'm giving the camera, uh, the photographer, all the credit here, you know, the apertures of the, of the landscape, uh, apertures, you know, seeing parts of the building and framed in different ways. So it really was not so much about itself, but about the surroundings and this solid object where everything else in this, um, in the project is about movement. So this one was the most solidly, uh, conceived. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a nice, um, kind of like a palate cleanser. It was, and the one I really, really was struck by in terms of how much I just just liked was the uh, the wooden serpentine uh, house, the summer house. Oh, I the Burko Leibinger one. Yeah, that just irritated me to no end. Um, <laughs> honestly, it just it looks like a basswood model uh, supersized and dropped down on a site. It just seems there's something about it. I don't know if it's just the photos, but the perspective makes it appear that it's kind of drooping. So it's like the wood has already warped in the case of a day. And I don't know whether or not it's just looking at it right after Kunle Adeyemi's house of this, <laughs> yeah, as you say, the total structurally sound and solid. And then seeing this very <laughs> indulgent in swoopy, infinite line drawings form, it, it makes it seem all that more insubstantial. I do like, though, that the, he describes it as a prototype that will have another life, meaning he's maybe using this serpentine opportunity as a way to work through a new idea, which is, again, I think when it comes to things like architectural follies or temporary pavilions, that's a totally legitimate response is to say, this is a small scale version of something that I'm really interested in trying out so that I can think about how to scale it up or take it to another another place. So I find this one also less enjoyable in a lot of ways, but I do like how he describes it as a, as a prototype for some other ideas, which again, that's what pavilions do, right? And, you know, to be honest, I mean, it, it might be telling that Iwan Bond could not photograph this project very well. <laughs> and that might be it, is that, you know, you know the, the things that I'm interested in, when he gets closest to the, the, the piece and he takes a photograph of it, there are spaces in there that he doesn't approach and is not, at least it's not on the site. So he might have had those photos. But to me, the more interesting things are, how does this, you know, how does it feel to be inside this piece? Everything is photographed outside of this piece, kind of right, at a distance. Right, so exactly. it's, I never have a sense of the space of this piece, where the other yeah. ones, at least you have a sense of them because you're either inside them or you can kind of get inside them through his uh, camera. And this is the only one that really you don't get a sense of, of the interior. I can definitely see this one becoming a kind of kid favorite. There are so many different nooks and crannies and places to kind of <laughs> hide. Yeah. So maybe that there should be another competition entirely for like within the public use of these pavilions. And of course, we'd like to see as the months go on how the public responds to these and whether there's a clear favorite. To move on to the last summer house, we have something that definitely, to me, refers back to Sufu Fujimoto's, what I think is one of the most successful serpentine pavilions of the past. This kind of beautiful and very specific to the Queen Caroline Pavilion piece, we have Asif Khan's design, which is this very, I think, very elegantly designed series of white vertical slats that form this specific shape as to hit the sun in a very specific way as a reference to the design for the temple and how it was going to have some kind of alignment with a solar event on the queen's birthday as to kind of mark her significance. So I think that in terms of at least if you were to read the, art, the architect's brief on this project, you would get 
a very clear explanation of why the design is the way it is and kind of what it's meant to refer to and how it's meant to function. But I kind of wish I didn't read any of that <laughs> before looking at this. <laughs> but before I say any, anything else, Donna or Ken, what, what did you guys think about this one? I'll say that it's the one far and away of all of them that hits the ground the nicest. I mean, if you look, someone someone in their firm took some time and made sure that the gravel matched the, the built portion exactly and that it's all extremely well manicured. So it's very, very elegant in how it touches the ground, which I, I appreciate as a, as a teacher who is always telling my students, think about the ground plane and no one ever wants to think about the ground plane. I, I applaud Asif for, for thinking about the ground plane in this one. Ken, what did you think? I, I was going to say the same thing. I, I love no, the, really? uh, the way. It, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think because that's exactly what, what what you know. Maybe we're maybe we're just too old, and we we just focus on these inane things. But the way it kind of is peeling out of the ground. I mean, it's hard to kind of see where the edges of the of the of these veins actually hit the ground and the gravel begins. Or so it's so well constructed and placed. I think my only my only feeling about it that I don't like is I don't like what people are sitting on it on the inside. I just don't. It seems rather after the fact. <laughs> so it just doesn't seem it just I, I'm not sure what that piece is. Uh, I just like the shell and, and the way the uh, the rib cage kind of peels out of the ground. I thought it was just just lovely. That does seem like the circular kind of shaded seat almost reminds me of some really minimal bus stop kind of shelters. That being placed in the middle does, I agree, seem like a little bit of an afterthought. And almost it would be interesting to see if there could have been other kind of furniture elements built into the design that have a little bit more consistency with the just using these very elegant vertical slats. I think this one is by far the least useful as a piece of public space. Like if you were to use this in a park and what you could use it for, I think, again, to give the kind of kid perspective that it would be functioning as a fantastic jail that you would banish people to in any type of game. But there wouldn't be any type of specific kind of activation, I feel, of something like this. It seems to be more about creating these kind of surreptitious barriers rather than someplace to kind of activate the space and engage people to to hang out there as opposed to just pass through it. I see a lot of potential for it, though. I mean, you know, from um, uh, someone, again, I, I just, I don't know why I'm focusing on this, but, you know, tagging this in a certain way so that when you read it in one direction, it says one thing and, it, and you come in another direction, it says another. You could chain a bike to this thing. It could become, <laughs> yeah. no, I mean, you could, you could, I could see, I think on a lot of these, I think I, I could conceive of uh, a green, uh, some greenery kind of growing up and around it and kind of entangling itself. So I like the idea of putting this into a, just making all bike lock stations yeah. like this. <laughs> <laughs> just like really beautiful bike lock stations with perfectly matching gravel. It would look like yeah. the thing's wearing a tutu, like a tutu of bikes all wrapped around it. It's, <laughs> exactly. it's, it's waste. So I just, I just wanted to say just generally overall, years and years and years ago, I did this thing, this program called the Addingham School for the Study of the British Country House. It's a long name for a school, but it was basically a three-week program in Great Britain looking at the great country houses. And I do just want to point out to our United States listeners and maybe others who don't know, there's a there's a relationship to the landscape via these kinds of large public parks that the British countryside has that is very different from how the United States thinks about parks. And I think if we were to try to talk about all of these projects within those terms, it might change the discussion a little bit, which is why I really like hearing people like Ollie Wainwright talk about them. Um, you know, there's this whole deep, deep history of architectural follies in country house 
park gardens that's significant. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not quite the same relationship to the ground and the changing seasons and the weather as we have in the States. And so it's just, it's nice for us to be able to see these little things that are part of a very different tradition from us. And I, I couldn't really put my finger on what it is, but maybe we could get Ollie Wainwright or someone to weigh in in the comments about how that difference might change things. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think there's a much more romantic view of the human in nature in a lot of ways. I love that point, Donna. I think that's really significant to bring up, especially in the fact that this is at least to take Bjarke, by his word, seen as such an exciting architectural chance to act without constraints of supposedly context, or even in the case of Big, whose pavilion was sponsored by Goldman Sachs, hardly in any type of <laughs> kind of budgetary constraints. So I think that knowing that, and of course, none of these architects are based in Great Britain, but um, the idea that you have this kind of incredible natural heritage to relate back to while at the same time getting to exercise your ability as an architect to create more of an art object in these spaces without having to deal with normal constraints, I think is is pretty fascinating and something that, yeah, I think you'd have to do a lot more work in a U.S. perspective to kind of justify getting anything like this done. Exactly. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, whether it's this or the uh, biennial, the the one thing that I always feel that is lacking from uh, this is the, you know, what these projects prove to me, at least, is that there isn't any sense of community in terms of the profession. And what I mean by that is this, is that what this, and it seems to me not having been there, so I'm kind of an outsider and, and just my perception of it, that the orchestration of these things is not clear about how you put together a, a a set piece, an orchestra piece, when you have these very different characters, how do they play together? How does one piece reference or refer to another or influence another? How can those 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 languages kind of play for, off of one another? I, I, I and again, maybe I'm asking for the impossible, but it seems as though a lot of times these kinds of things are, you have someone who wants to get something done, they have a specific thing in mind. They want four objects. They want it in a space. They have four four or five different architects to do it. But there isn't any real thought into what is the overall orchestration of the entire composition. So it doesn't read as an object, an object, an object. And what is, how do they relate to, and, and I understand it's probably relating to the specific programmatic requirements of the temple, but these things should relate in my mind, should have a discussion with one another. And it doesn't ever seem like they have that kind of discussion. So, Well, well, this is the first year that the summer houses have been part of the Serpentine Pavilion's overall summer programming. So we'll have to see exactly how the programming and the intent kind of evolve, especially after Julia Payton Jones is no longer directing it. So we'll look forward to future years and maybe we'll continue to see new elaborations on how those groups of architects who are designing the summer houses might work together. It seems always like an opportunity for both competition and <laughs> and mutual kind of backslapping of everyone gets a chance to share that space. <laughs> so to round things off for this episode, we also wanted to bring back a segment that we haven't done in a while, but just something where a point in the episode at the end where we get to endorse some of the other topics or pieces on ArcConnect that we haven't had a chance to talk about in depth, but we're all kind of excited about. So Donna, you had a forum discussion you wanted to endorse. <laughs> I'd love to hear it. I yeah. love it when we get to endorse forum discussions. <laughs> so there's a new movie coming out called the Architect, and it is not to be confused with a movie that came out in 2006 called The Architect, which was apparently starring Anthony LaPaglia and was about inner city uh, housing projects. 
This is a new movie directed by uh, Jonathan Parker and starring Parker Posey, who I adore. And there's the main character in the movie is the architect. And the discussion forum has been just kind of going crazy with commenting on the movie trailer. So I would encourage people who haven't already seen this cross their social media to go to the forums and look for the thread called Not Another Architect Movie. Watch the trailer and <laughs> let us let everyone know what you think about the way the architect is portrayed. And I think just two little spoilers. One, he has a British accent. Two, I think the word that seems appropriate in that case is that he comes across as a twit. So <laughs> I, would, I would just love to have more people weigh in on that discussion. It's a very funny discussion within the forum about um, how the public perceives us, which is always something we, we have great angst over. So <laughs> that's it. Yeah. We also posted this trailer to the news and there hasn't been near, I think, a, a couple yeah. days or so after the forum post was already raging in this discussion. And we only had a couple comments here, nothing so much as as is entertaining on the forum. So I encourage people to go to the forum post. But I thought this was, it. it it's something that does seem to invite the worst kind of um, whining stereotypes and whining. <laughs> yes, and whining. But it's also not just whining because it's like almost an egotistical thing or a narcissistic thing to see a movie like this and think that it necessarily has to be a depiction of exactly what the profession is, which is you know, a little bit ridiculous, just in the same way that you see Rocky and you're like, that's not like, I'm a boxer and that's not what my life is like. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I've, it's probably exactly. okay. But Ken, actually, I think we came, I first came across this from, you had posted it, I think on Facebook or something. And so I'm sure you have, you're also on the camp of the stop the whining. Let's see, oh, what, yeah, what did you think about the trailer? You know what? I'm going to see the movie and I'm going to glory, I'm going <laughs> to bathe in the glory of the stupidity of it. But at the same time, I'm going to be like, well, you know, doctors are never portrayed or doctors are always portrayed correctly on film, right? And of course lawyers they are. are totally always accurate. doing exactly what they're doing. And look, we can't make this stuff up. We have an architect in our history that whose wife was like hatcheted by like the staff. I mean, yeah. he was a serial philanderer. I mean, we don't have a whole lot of room to kind of stand on ceremony and say, this doesn't represent us the way we should be represented. <laughs> I mean, we really just, it's the pomposity of, you know, one of the things I, I'm constantly telling people that um, who aren't architects, I'm like, you just don't want to hang around with architects. They're the most loathsome bunch of creatures on the planet. And it just so happens <laughs> that I'm friends with a lot of architects, but they're not loathsome creatures. But generally, by and large, we're just like whiny little prisses. And it's like, yes, you know, we are. We absolutely are. <laughs> oh, I think I said this, the best thing at the AIA convention in Philadelphia was watching Peter Marino arm in arm with his partner and w seeing him wear leather. To me, that's what I want my profession to be. I want my profession to look like, and it never will, but I want it to look like that. Because <laughs> that, that to me just says, that says everything I want to be as an architect. <laughs> all right. I, I think you're opening us up to, to some meme making, Ken, with the, <laughs> put, it, put all architects in leather in a meme. Ooh. Oh my gosh, I can see the, the paper dolls already. <laughs> paper dolls, perfect. Dress your architect like Peter Marino. Yep. Well, aside from, I think it's, it's always fun to also try to guess what the film will be like from the trailer. I, I had a similar feeling as another one of the commenters of feeling that it, the middle of the trailer, you feel like it's going to become a horror film. There's something about the way it's shot and the or the suspense that is built around the inherent tenseness of the house that they're being that they're commissioning the architect to build for them. That it seems like at some point one of them is going to kill the other one. <laughs> but I I will also probably end up seeing this and and I look forward to it. Ken, do you have another endorsement you'd like to share? 
Yeah, I think given that we're hitting the summer season and we're about ready to hit 100 degrees here in Minneapolis, which is unheard of, the two things that I, I, I'm always, I'm fondly remembering is one of the uh, Arconnect contributors, and I think he became an editorial staff member at one point, Marlin's Arconnect Travels. If you take a look at those videos um, and those blog posts and uh, news items, those were some of the best best things that um, I had seen in a long time. It was great to get a on the road perspective of uh, architecture, architects, spaces. Um, I think he went to Arcosanti. I think it was one of them. Um, it was great, and I think the Arconnect. There was also blog series Arconnect Travels. I think so. Revisiting those, you know, and just getting back from Chicago and thinking about uh, traveling. And um, in August, I'll be going to San Francisco again. So it's always on my mind. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things I found in teaching was that when I was in school, it seems like we spent a lot of time when we could going to see buildings, going to see things that were near us, and then, you know, relaying those stories to our classmates. And when I was teaching, I felt like a lot of the students I was working with didn't do that so much. So I just wanted to endorse Ken's endorsement of going and seeing buildings, going and seeing these places so you can form more concrete opinions on them based on having experienced them. And that was one of the greatest things about Marlon's Arconnect Travels was he would sort of say, well, I had a preconception about the building that it might be this. And then I went and saw it. And here's what I discovered. And it was, they were always so illuminating. Really, really a great series. You know, I went to, when I was in Chicago this past weekend, I, I, I never really paid a lot of attention to the Tribune building. And um, when I'm watching, I'm standing in front of the building and I noticed that inset in the face of the building are stones from different parts of the world, from different right. pieces of architecture that the, the family gathered and, and placed into the building. And I'm like, you know, it just makes you want to. I mean, when you see architecture and you see <laughs> these beautiful buildings in Chicago, and it just makes you want to, it makes you want to be a better architect. It makes you want to travel the world. It just brings yeah. um, a lot of um, great feeling. Absolutely. We actually started up a uh, kind of evolution from that series in the news that mostly Justine Destato in our office has been taking care of, of interviewing architects all over the world to get basically what would be their kind of lonely planet style architectural recommendations for, for where they live or where they practice. And it's so fascinating because it's not just a list of here are the buildings you must see if you are in the city, but it's the spots that architects appreciate for whatever reason. So it can be, doesn't it, most of the time it, they are actual buildings or architectural spaces, but sometimes they're just a totally otherwise missable kebab stand in a mini mall that you would never know about. <laughs> and you can kind of get a little bit of a, of a like feeling of appreciation and community of knowing that someone who operates in the city and might do work that you really appreciate has made this recommendation to you. And we're worried we've got a few other travel series features up our sleeve for the coming summer months to hopefully catch people while they're heading out. So I will direct people in the show notes to the most recent one, which I believe was um, in Copenhagen with a former podcast guest nonetheless. So look for that. So I would like to endorse Nicholas Cordry in our office's uh, interview with Joseph Grima of Space Caviar. Joseph Grima was also the co-artistic director of last year's Chicago Architecture Biennial. And Nicholas's interview with him is mostly about this project that Space Caviar did called the Ram House, which is this really fascinating discussion of how kind of smart devices in the home are capable of seeing through walls. And so what, what this house would be would be an idea of 
creating walls that don't just block visible light, but other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, such that it's a house that is basically a Faraday cage. And there's some beautiful photos along with the interview that accompany the piece that give you a really specific idea of what it would actually be like to be inside and to really inhabit this because it is technically inhabitable. You might not want to, you know, spend your life in there, but it is technically inhabitable. And the interview just goes really deep into these notions of privacy and security that are completely not just meshed in architectural discourse, but the entire technological discourse of things like smart home and, of course, national security issues. So as for June in On Architect, we are focusing on issues of privacy. And so this piece was kind of our inaugural look into that. Um, so I would heartily recommend anyone who's interested in those kinds of topics to check out Nicholas's interview. But other than that, that is it for this week on Archonnect Sessions. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, we are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, or you can email us through connect at archonnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Otherwise, until next week, thanks so much.